I love it. A lot of good sharing in the house this morning. Also, peace to you who are joining us online. Uh, glad you could be part of our community. We are going to continue our look through the book of First Timothy. If we haven't met, my name is Timothy. You can refer to me as First Timothy. We got, we got another Tim over here. We got another Tim over here. Any other Tims? Okay. So, you can be First Timothy too. But today we're going to read First Timothy 3. So, I'd like to invite Lynn up um, to read this for us. We turn our attention to the text. Three, verses one through three. Here is a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. The word of the Lord. Maybe you had a list as a young person of like, this is the person I'm going to be, or the person that I would like to be with, or maybe this is the career or job that I would somebody like to have, and in great detail spilled it out. A few weeks ago, our kids were playing the game of life with some other kids. Anybody play this thing? Right? I don't know if it's healthy or not for developing minds. Not sure, but whatever. They got a hold of it. Could have been worse. They're playing with some friends, and pretty soon our kids are saying, like, well, this is what I'm, my life's going to be like. I'm going to do this. I'm going to have this many kids. I'm going to drive this car, and blah, 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 blah. And I sympathize as a future-oriented planner. But things don't always turn out the way that we think they're going to, right? I'm sure you played the game of life at some point mentally or on the board. And I don't know if that's how things are looking for you right now. They're not for me. But what we get here in the book of First Timothy is this list. It's longer than what Lynn read, and we'll get into that. This list of, of what a life or what lives can look like when they are, are turned towards something in particular. We get a picture of this. Paul is writing this letter to the church in Ephesus, particularly to the pastor Timothy there, and he's trying to say, these are some things that we can orient our people around. A list, if you will. And we're going to dig into that. Just a little bit of roadmap for this morning. We're going to look at these two types, two lists we see in 1 Timothy 3, and then we're going to ask a question, and then we're going to look what I think is the, the thing beneath the thing. What's beneath these lists? Then we're going to look at some obscure Roman culture stuff and then ask another question. And we'll move right along. Sound okay? Here we go. So I'm going to turn your attention to the screen. This is where the text begins. We're also going to read through it together, then we'll go back and highlight a few things in this list. As we heard, this is a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach. Faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. It's good. He must be, manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. He must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone doesn't know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? 
He must not be a recent convert or he may become, become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Side note, if you want to learn more about handing people over to the devil, Troy gave a great sermon on that a couple weeks ago. Go back and listen to that. Now, we'll continue on. And this is where the text switches from overseers to deacons. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in too much wine and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of faith with a clear conscience, and they must first be tested. And then if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, women are to be worthy of respect and not malicious talkers, but tempered and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. And those who have served well gain an excellent standing and the great assurance in the faith of Jesus Christ. That's a long list. There's a lot of things to live up to there. I don't think that Paul is writing to this church to set forward a, this standard of what it looks like to be a leader in this church, knowing that this church is having a hard enough time in the middle of this global city as a young church, young religion even, and saying, well, we're just gonna make this really hard. That's not what's happening here. So let's take another look at this text with some fresh eyes and kind of pick out a few of the words. And I think what this will do is invite us into a little bit of an understanding of what's going on. So here we go, back to the top. Here is a trustworthy saying. Now, there are a lot of ways Paul could have opened this list. He could have said something like, and here's the way it needs to be for the next year. Here's our three-year vision. Here's what leadership needs to look like as we take us kind of through the black box and up and to the right, and this is what it's going to be. He's not laying out a super strategic plan here. I think he's kind of prefaces saying like, hey, take a look at this. Consider this uh, as an aspirational goal. Here's a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer. In some translations, this has been translated as elder. For a lot of us, this holds some baggage if you've been in the church. Positive, negative, could be either way. But I don't think this is the same thing that we see as the organizational leaders, spiritual leaders, and often functioning board of directors of a 501c3 church. That's not exactly what Paul's talking about here. The term overseer, as we see it translated here, I think is helpful. We also, in some translations, get the word bishop, which is interesting. It's the, it's the Greek word episkopoi. Well, you might hear episcopalian bishop in there. And so what I think I would like us to turn our attention to is that this overseer role is not necessarily a formally held office in the church. It may have been in some places and sometimes, but this is an invitation that I think is broader than that. That is for your, my development in our spiritual journey. For it is a noble task, Paul says. Now, fast forward, we see this word his. Lots of male pronouns showing up here. Now, there's some varied opinions on this, but, but I think some great scholarship um, is showing us that this is the, it's the Greek norm in this case. Paul is not norm setting for all times and in all places. And the Greek language, much like some of the Romance languages, Spanish, as many of you have studied, is going to use the male pronoun to capture both male and female when they're talking um, in the plural. So I think that's what's happening here in this particular text. Um, and then we also know that this is a letter in context. We looked at the, how the temple of Artemis and kind of this domineering female leadership is part of the culture. 
in Ephesus. And so maybe it is that in this case, for this time, Paul is saying, you know, there, there needs to be a, an uptick in male leadership in this, this case. Maybe. But what we don't see is Paul making verdicts for all time. And know that as we try and faithfully follow Jesus based on this text that God has given us, the, the entire scriptures that we're continue to claim and live into the, the equality of male and female leadership as a church. So, then we get some of these characteristics. Temperate, self-controlled, respectable. Interesting. If you were making a list for church leaders, what, is, what are a couple things that would be on those? Probably something like theological, yes? Yeah, I see some head nods, right? like affirms the Apostles' Creed and all, and all these things. We don't, we don't necessarily get that right away, nor do we get needs to be a charismatic, winsome, dynamic leader. If you looked at a church job description for a pastor lately, I haven't in quite a few years, but there was a season, and everyone was led with dynamic, visionary, bring in the young families, boom! <laughs> that's, that's not what we get in this particular text. We get these things like temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Some translations would say, is teachable. So there's humility worked into this. That's a little bit different track of leadership. Again, not focused on one or two people or even a particular office, but a wider invitation that people can step into and pursue as part of the local church. We go to this next slide and we get this highlighted here. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders. There's a sense that this church's forward-facing life, its public and community interaction really matter. Last week, Ashley talked to us a little bit about how uh, in 64 AD, there was the great Roman fire. And Nero, the emperor, tried to blame that on the Christian community. And I think this is maybe top of Paul's mind as he's saying, you know what, we're not going to be perfect. We know we signed up for something that may be at odds with a lot of the culture, but also know that we're not trying to get hunted down on purpose. We must have a good reputation with the world as well as to survive. He's not, not overly concerned with it, but just like it does matter what it looks like as we interact with those who are not part of our particular fellowship. It does matter. And we continue on. In the same way, deacons. So here we have a shift from this overseer to this word deacon. Depending on the tradition you grew up in, this may be a word that was a formal office as well. We have elders and deacons in a lot of churches um, in our area. This word, I think, diakonos in the Greek is, is maybe best translated servant. In the same way, servants are to be worthy of respect. And so this is another role, not maybe a formal voting office, but another role that people can grow up into in the church. That there's a place for those who can hold the deep truths of faith with clear conscience. This is where we do get a sense of like, these people need to hold on to something dearly. These theological truths of who God is, how God loves, how God is redeeming. But part of that holding is also communicating. So I think these people are also the ones who are called in their service to speak words of truth and blessing to the world. Those who know and hold 
the deep truths so that they can come out of them with a clear conscience. Doesn't mean like they'll feel guilty about doing this, but it flows out of their soul. These are people who grow up in ways that pray for and bless people that they come encounter. They are the presence, the aroma of Christ as we get in this other text, who are serving the broader community and serving the church. Deacons, service, servants. Then we get this word tested. This pushes back against some of our sensibilities, I think. They must first be tested. Now, at first you're like, okay, okay but I don't, I don't want to be tested. I'm not sure what that means. I don't know if there's a formal process for this in this particular church. I, I would guess not immediately, but that does great against something in me. Like, I don't want you to look at my life too clearly. And yet that's the invitation, is to let this community of Jesus people into your life so that God can do something that God could not do otherwise, that with us and through us. And so there's a vulnerability that comes with these offices, that comes with these roles. We get this next text, next slide. In some way, women are to be worthy of respect There's a lot of ways this sentence could be written. And I I think it's not just like we're talking to men and then there's the women. That there's a a particular uh, way that Paul's saying, no, women are caught up in this calling as well. So I think it's another clue to say, hey, this is more than just male office holders who vote on things in a stuffy room on Tuesday nights. That's, That's not what we're going after here in this text. And I don't think that plays well in the context of Ephesus either. And then again, we have those who have served, reiterating this is an office that serves. This harkens, I I think, back to Mark chapter 10. The Son of Man, speaking of Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve. That these people who are stepping into this this role or this faith journey are, are those who are being as Christ to the church. Which, organizational side note, Leadership is like that. We have an elder board. They are some wonderful people. They are not your representatives. We don't have a representative democracy as an elder board. In fact, it's something greater that those who are called elders are called to represent Christ to the church and the people's prayers before Christ. So this is an act of service and humility rather than it is a power over and so that's the thing that is, people are being invited into. We have overseer and we have deacon. These two roles before us that each kind of get a paragraph. And I think as we read this, I, I hope that there is something inside of you as maybe you are wondering, what's, what's next for me? How am I supposed to grow? I don't even know what to do with church. I wonder if these are maybe not formally voted upon offices, if this text is an invitation to you and to me to say, where is it that the Spirit is calling me to grow? Is there something in one of these particular roles that is is tugging at something inside of you, a gifting that the Spirit has put in there? Let's look a little bit deeper and let's expand this a little bit. If we're looking at an overseer, this is someone who tends, as this uh, word is used throughout the text, tends to be someone who just has an expansive vision for the church. 
Someone who's able to step in increased intercession and prayer for the community on behalf of God's beloved, right? And is in, in moving in profound generosity and sacrificial giving of time and presence and talents. And someone who's willing to, to contend in prayer for what God is doing in and through the church. This is something for you, not something for them. And so I wonder, is this something that you could be being called through through the power of the Spirit this morning? Likewise, some of us may have a tendency towards this other type of role, this servant, this deacon, who is, is, is taught to move forward in greater humility in the world, following Jesus. We sing, look at the humility of God. We, lead, we, li- we li- read the first part of Philippians. We say, look at this God who gives up everything to lead out of humility, giving profound generosity, and then be people who are speaking blessing and truth into the world, who hold so tightly in themselves the, the sincere truth of the faith that Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again, Christ is redeeming all things in love for all people, that that just leaks out of them. Maybe you aspire and are being called to be the person who sees somebody in the workplace, in the classroom, and just simply speaks the truth of God over that you are beloved that that narrative of that shame has no place here, that you have a better story, that you have someone who is calling you to eternal life, to life eternal now. Maybe these are some invitations for you right now. So is one or the other resonating? Maybe it's a little bit of both. Where might the Spirit being called be calling you to grow now? So that's our text. And to say yes to some of this, we also need to say no to some things. Directly, we need to say yes to trusting that Jesus is calling us into these things and no to trying to hold all these things together ourselves. Now we'll get there, but first to understand this, we need to understand kind of what's going on in the culture behind these invitations in Ephesus. So we need to look at a few things like Roman trade guilds and burial societies. Anybody part of a... uh, a union, trade union, workers union. You don't have to raise your hand. Uh, I know Starbucks is getting some new ones, maybe Amazon. Um, but these are groups of people who in the workplace have collective bargaining. Say, we're going to band together and, and work together. There's a certain sense of identity. There's a pipe fitters union. There's a teacher's union, the MEA uh, in Michigan here, right? So we have these things that exist in our world. They have a little bit of social in them and a lot of bit of work and collective bargaining and and identity. Now, in the first century, in the Roman world, if you were part of the trade economy, you were most likely part of a guild or a union. Now, these were somewhat like what we know today, but you gotta add in a couple things. You go next slide. In these trade uh, guild feasts, they would have these parties where everybody who's in, in the union comes together. 
quite often, and there's these, these promiscuous parties, so to speak, where there was also a separate deity, small g God, for each of these unions who would be worshiped through frivolity and doing whatever you want, and it was encouraged. That was what these things looked like. And to be part of the functioning trade economy in places like Ephesus meant you were most likely part of one of these unions if you wanted to be economically successful. So not only were they a workers' union, they were a worship service. They're also part of um, these, these feasts and parties where it was just raucous debauchery. And it was also much like a, uh, a, you know, uh, a rowdy college fraternity that kind of lost their university charter, kind of put all those things into the mix. And you have the original toga party. <laughs> These were actually a thing, not Animal House, but um, that there were, this was part of the working economy. To be part of the uh, economy in Ephesus, um, Thessalonica, other places, you were part of these things. And so what's interesting, though, is there's a tension that begins to emerge as we read these lists of texts about what it means to grow in faith and participation in the local church as an overseer or as a servant, where you hear these things that say, faithful to the spouse. Well, that wasn't happening at the guild feast. Not prone to drunkenness. Also not part of participating in this civic organization. Temperate, thoughtful, humble, not part of this part of the economy. And so you have a tension that is set up, let alone worshiping another deity to provide for you economically in your trade. So there is a tension that's felt as this call, this invitation is ushered or is given to the community. Wait, wait a minute. You're saying if I'm going to be part of this thing, it makes it hard to be part of this thing. Yes. One of the invitations of Jesus was not to economic stability and thriving. Doesn't mean there's not a place for participation in the economy. But I think we sit with a tension with the people of Ephesus saying, what do I do? I have this high and holy calling in my life from this one I claim as Lord, and then I have this other way of being in the world that helps support me economically, socially. And there is a tension that we must try and get into with this text. For some of us, this may not seem too far away. So then you start this, at least me, I approach that tension with this dance of like, well, they said when I was younger in Sunday school, I could be in the world, but not of the world. Anybody resonate with this? Kind of this dance, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I think the tension, though, we feel is, is this is saying, I, I don't think you can do that for very long. Those of us who have tried that dance realize it's easy to trip. So what do we do with that? Likewise, we have uh, the burial societies in, in the Roman culture. These are uh, these groups who you would pay dues to, much like a union. There'd be a little bit of a social aspect. And what they would do is they would make sure that when you died, that the right gods would be prayed for 
and made offering to, that you would have a place to be buried. They would hire mourners to come to your graveside and wish you well into the afterlife. Now these also would have other lesser gods attached to them. Feasts and functions that were not becoming of someone who is part of this community of Jesus with love and respect for self and all people. And so we sit in these tensions. And so when, when Paul is issuing this invitation, I imagine people hear this like, I, I don't know what to do. I've been trying to hold all these pieces of my life together. I have been trying and trying to say, I can do a little bit of this and this and this and this, and I can stay economically viable here by being in these spaces, even though it doesn't feel great, but I know I can do it. And then I, I, have, I pay my dues over here so that when, just in case this Jesus thing doesn't work out, just in case that, that, that religious, you know, rising from the dead thing doesn't happen, I can be taken care of in my society and be buried this way. Trying to play all the angles. And so beneath the text is an invitation to stop trying but to trust that God has something bigger and better and more profound for us. Do we want to keep trying this game plan that doesn't ultimately go anywhere? Or is there an opportunity that we come face to face with in a text like this that's not about behavior management, but about trusting these big parts of our lives and trusting ourselves even unto death and to Jesus Christ? the author and the perfecter of our faith. There are competing priorities and tensions that are in front of the Ephesians who hear this letter. How am I going to continue to work? How is my business going to thrive? How, how is this going to happen socially? I need to be at this party. I need to be doing this. I need people, can I, can I still come like worship here in secret and also pay my dues at the Artemis temple? Can I just have a, you know, a side bet on this life insurance policy in Roman society and then really kind of try and go all in with this Jesus thing? And I think the answer subtly and implicitly is no. And this is where trust comes in. Because we know that we cannot live divided. We know from the story, right, that we cannot serve both God and money. And those of us who have tried serving multiple masters have failed and it's led to ruin and broken relationship. And so we know that's true. And yet, our temptation is to try and make it all work. Because the, option, the opposite is not trying and failing, but it's trying or trusting. Do we trust that if we take a step into something that feels like it's just a little too far, it's a little too much, it's a little too risky, following the Holy Spirit, will God meet us and open up something that we could never have seen before? And so I would imagine, as you are hearing this, that there are some specific places in your life where you are spending time, money, energy, attention, physical presence, where the option is no longer trying to hold these multiple things together, but is emphatically to say no to something so God can open up a different possibility of trust for you in your life. That there are, there are things... There are people that are still in a contact on our phone, relationships that we may be dabbling with on the side or wishing we were. There are websites and videos that we want to be clicking on. There are meetings that we think we can be in and bars we think we can go to. There are narratives that we can live into that there is a clear invitation beneath the text here subtly and with grace to say no more. It is the Jesus who stands before these people and before us and says, you don't need another feast 
There is one feast and one provider who can hold you. Don't go to another. Do not be divided. Do not try and hold this together yourself. But instead, the invitation implicit in this text is to trust the one who began a good work in you and is faithful to complete it. It is this Jesus who stands at the middle of this text and at the middle of this community saying, you can say no because I have said yes to you. And so that is what we are called to in this text is a step in trust into that Jesus. Knowing full well, Paul knows this so well as he's writing this, that there are economic risks to what he's asking these people to be and do in the world. That there are metaphysical afterlife type risks that they're gonna be thinking about as they say, am I all in on Jesus? And it will go on through the letter in the coming weeks where Paul reiterates again and again and again, Jesus has gone all in on you. That this redemptive project of renewal and restoration in the person of Jesus Christ is able to be trusted and trustworthy. And so as we come to the table this morning, take some time and consider, is there some place you need to leave? Is there something you can't do anymore? Are you tired and burdened with trying to hold multiple narratives together? Is the invitation to grow, overseer, servant, deacon, bishop, these grand invitations in front of us which are accessible to all people. To say yes to that, we have to say no to some things. To say the bigger yes, there are lesser no's. We need to let go. So what is that for you? What do we need to say no to in order to say yes to the one who has said yes to us? for eternity. So we start with the promise. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. And so we pray. Lord, how right and good thing it is that in all times and in all places, we give thanks to you, God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And therefore we praise you, Lord. We join our voices with the saints who have come before, with the angels and archangels and all the company of heaven who forever sing this hymn to proclaim the glory of your name. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might. Heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And so Lord, would you send your spirit on this table and upon our hearts this morning so that as bread is broken and cup is poured and our hearts are opened to you, that you would do something that we cannot do for ourselves, that you would make this meal unto us the communion of the body of Christ and that you would make us your people more and more in the likeness of your son to be those who move into the world boldly, trusting in your promises. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.
And so we gather around a table, much like the disciples on the night before Jesus was betrayed, knowing that they are at an alternate feast, that they are doing something different, that they are giving their lives to someone, to something that is not like the other feast options. And that when Jesus breaks the bread, and he says to them, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. They know that there is nothing they can do themselves but trust in this Jesus. And at the end of the meal, likewise, Jesus took the cup and he poured it saying, this is the new covenant, is the new promise in my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. And so we do. We have some space to come and take and eat the body of Christ to be filled by the feast that only fulfills and doesn't take, that unites us and doesn't leave us divided. We have time in this space to continue to sing and pray and put prayers in the wall and know that you will be prayed with. There'll be somebody to pray with you in the back if it's helpful to to say some things out loud or simply be blessed and spoken truth over. This is the meal. This is the feast where the life is. And we do this rehearsing the story, the one that gives life. And we say this together, that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. So come, brothers and sisters, come and take and eat and be filled and renewed and trust this story Trust the one who hosts this table, Jesus Christ. Come and receive.